Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. Whether you attend our 10 a.m. gathering on Sundays here in Denver, are just checking us out, or listen every week from far away, our hope is that by engaging with Scripture, together we can explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at denverchurch.org. To get connected or find out more about what's going on in and around our community, you can visit our website at denverchurch.org or download our app by searching Denver Community Church in the App Store. And if you want to financially support the healing work we are doing as we invest in our community while setting aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Know that spaces like ours can only exist through the radical generosity of those who call DCC home. Thank you for being here. Let's get to the teaching. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Just before uh, we start our teaching, uh, I want to remind you that a couple weeks from now, as Nick shared earlier, uh, is Easter Sunday. And uh, on Easter, we don't have just one gathering like we do typically. We have two gatherings. um, And that means that all of the volunteers who we typically have for one gathering who are able to serve all of you, doing things like helping you park your cars, uh, making coffee, Uh, being downstairs in DCC Kids Nurturing Our Children, uh, we don't have enough because we have the two gatherings. And so this is why we want to invite you to worship at one of our gatherings and serve at one of our gatherings. Now, I realize that Easter, there's often a lot of planning and uh, brunches and things like that, but this would be uh, a real gift for our community. And so kind of around on the chairs out there, there's the little cards that say WOSO on it. And uh, you can scan the QR code, and it would really mean a lot. Um, Volunteers are central to what we do here uh, each week, week in, week out. Uh, And if you call DCC home and you enjoy uh, these gatherings, we really would ask for you to give back that way uh, by joining us, by worshiping at one and serving at one. If you have any questions about that, you can head to the participate area at the end of our gathering. Kirsten is back there. Keith is back there. They can give you more information. You can also go to our website and scroll down, and you'll see that logo, WOSO, uh, and you can sign up and learn more there. So thanks in advance for making our Easter services work. If we don't have enough volunteers, by the way, uh, all of us on staff are just going to go downstairs with the kids on Easter, and um, you guys can sit up here and chit-chat. Let's pray together. God, we thank you. Uh, We thank you for the opportunity to be here together with you, with one another this morning. Uh, As we continue to explore during this Lenten season the glory of being human, would you continue to shape us and reshape us as to how we understand ourselves in one another. We pray these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn to John chapter 10. If you don't, there's a Bible beneath the chair in front of you, and you can follow along. Jesus is having a conversation, and he's doing what he typically does. He's telling a story. And this particular story that he's telling, he's telling a story about a sheep and a shepherd. And this is what he says to some 
in the community who are very religious. He says, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees. The Pharisees are a religious sect within Judaism. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way as a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they will know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, Very truly, I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he has a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from the father. Now, there's that little bit in there where it says the Pharisees don't know what he's saying. I may have just read all those verses, and you might be like, I have no idea what he's saying. Because it's all metaphor. And what Jesus seems to be getting at is this. Proof that I love the sheep is this, that I'll lay down my life for him. And no one else is going to do that. Now, we're just a couple of weeks away from Good Friday, and I'm assuming you know the story of Easter weekend, or Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and Easter, is that Jesus was crucified. Jesus died. Jesus, as he says here, laid down his life for the sheep. And I want to ask the question this morning, why? Why did Jesus lay down his life for the sheep? Now, some of you may presume you know the answer to that. Because we, if you've grown up in and around the church, you've heard stories about why Jesus laid down his life or why Jesus was crucified or why Jesus died. I grew up in and around the church, went to Christian schools my entire life, and so I heard the story a lot. And the stories that we tell are incredibly important because those stories will shape us and shape the way we see the world. And the story around Jesus' death seemed to be pretty straightforward. There was this idea of sin. And the world that I grew up in was very fundamentalist, very religious, and so sin was talked about a lot. Sin almost felt like it was the central character of the story. And sin was this thing 
that we did that angered God. And so I grew up in a world where, you know, sin is like, you know, drugs, sex, and rock and roll, and cigarettes, of course. Like sin are these rules that you break. It's these things that you do. And when you do these things, you prove one thing to everybody, that you and me are sinners. You see, sin wasn't just the central character. Sin was also our identity as human beings. I was told that we are born sinners, that we love sinning, that we choose sin, that we revel in sin. It's almost as though someone's beginning the story about humanity in Genesis chapter 3 and forgetting that our foundational identity is found in Genesis chapter 1 that says you and me and all human beings bear the divine image. That's our identity. But the story that I heard growing up was, no, your foundational identity is that you are a sinner and that you sin and you love sin. And this is very important. God hates sin. And just so you know, every time you sin, you are committing an offense directly against God himself. And so not only does God hate sin, God hates you. Now, it might seem far-fetched to you to believe that anyone stood on a platform and looked at a group of people and said things like, God hates you. But I can tell you, I heard that multiple times preached from platforms while I was growing up. I heard things like this. God can't stand to be in the same room as you. God is disgusted by you. When I was a freshman in high school, I remember this speaker who was like, God looks at you like you are a maggot and you know what God does to maggots, don't you? Which I didn't because I've never read anything about what God does to maggots. But you can imagine as a kid who was 14 years old, not even five feet tall, under 100 pounds, frantically knocking on the door of puberty only for there to be no answer, how terrifying it was to hear, God thinks you're a maggot and God hates you. But this is what I heard all the time. It was kind of like, all right, it must be true. There's enough people saying it. And so God, if left to God's own devices, God was going to just destroy everybody. And this is what I heard about all the time, over and over and over. I used to sit there thinking, man, I really hope that these people aren't the ones writing greeting cards, you know? You better get saved or else turn or burn. I mean, this is the, this is the message. And eventually, at some point in some cosmic world, Jesus like kind of was like, hey, dad, can we chat? Just, you seem kind of upset. And I get it, all the sinners. So I have an idea. What if I went down there and all of that wrath and anger and punishment you just want to unleash on human beings, what if you unleashed it on me and then you can be okay with them? God's like, fine. Jesus is like, good. God's like, I'm going to send you to a virgin. Jesus is like, what? That doesn't make any sense. So then you know the story. Jesus dies on the cross, a brutal, awful, terrible death. And it's God unleashing all of God's anger on him. And then Jesus rises from the dead on the third day that we call Easter Sunday. And the idea is this. If you believe that story, you get to spend eternity 
in some far away distant place way out there with God who's not angry anymore because he spent it all on Jesus. Now, I realize it's a bit of a caricature, but how many of you have heard a story very similar to that growing up in and around the church? Yes. You sinned. God's angry. Jesus stepped in, took it. Now we are saved from God. Oh, is that what we're saved from? We're saved from God's anger. We're saved from God's, we're saved from God. You see, this story shapes us. This story gives us some optics. And what I find fascinating about the story is that like, it's kind of a mechanical contract. It works pretty well, I mean, if you think about it. Like, someone did something wrong, Jesus paid the price, and God was, forgave it, and so that's fine. And so it's pretty clean, pretty linear. It, it, it makes some rational sense. But because the story shapes us, what was interesting for me growing up, hearing this story over and over, and the emphasis on sin, is that religion was not a vehicle for human beings to encounter the divine, to encounter God, to experience communion with God, religion really was more of a, like a moralistic way of living. Religion is what delivered to me and to you and to all of us the rules that we were supposed to keep. And so if you were a mature Christian or you were spiritual, as I heard people say, you didn't participate in all of the bad sins. And if you did, you had to keep a short account of those sins. Be sure that you ask forgiveness. I used to go to bed every night going, God, I've, I've kind of forgotten all the things I did wrong today because there was a lot. So just for whatever all those things were, please forgive me. Because I was told if you don't keep a short account of sins when you pray, God will not listen to you because once again, you are stained by sin. So religion just becomes this like moral project and it becomes a moral project because God's pissed off all the time. He's really angry. Which, by the way, is a very primitive, pagan way of looking at the gods. There are historians that point out that in the stories told in the ancient Near Eastern world, the primary purpose for human existence was to appease and placate the gods and do all of the work that they didn't want to do. And you had to make sure that you placated and appeased the gods because the gods are angry. And so there was this idea that like, you know, if you didn't do enough for the gods, the gods would withhold rain and you'd go into drought and there'd be famine in the land. Well, when that happened, you had to go and do certain things, often sacrifices, to, before the gods. And if it rained, you'd go, okay, now we know the gods are happy. How many bulls did we sacrifice? Six? Okay. Make sure we never sacrifice less than six bulls again. Until, of course, something else happens, and then you go, oh, I guess six bulls isn't enough. And over the course of history, what we see is human beings are trying to placate these angry gods, and the sacrifices keep getting more and more valuable until finally, we know from recorded history that there were civilizations who sacrificed human beings. Civilizations who sacrificed children to the gods to placate them because the gods were angry. They were saving their entire city from the gods. 
You see, this picture of God as an angry deity who's just sitting up there on a throne waiting to strike you dead for something you did or didn't do, that's like as primitive and ancient and pagan as it gets. And yet, this is the story that I grew up hearing in the modern-day United States of America in church. And then we have the end of the story, which is heaven. And how do we picture heaven oftentimes? Sitting on a cloud, am I right? A little halo, white gown, playing a harp. Is there any more boring picture of eternity than that? People are like, I cannot wait to get to heaven. I'm like, I can. A, I'm not very musical, so the whole harp thing is lost on me. B, just sitting on clouds all day. And people are like, oh, no, we're going to be singing. And I'm like, for eternity? <laughs> like, that just, I'm sorry that there's so many more fun things you can do than that. I mean, if that's heaven, I don't know if it's just one other place to go to, but I'm kind of 50-50 on whether or not I want to go there. But here's what's interesting, that picture that we have of the white robes and the halo and some of us get wings, um, and then you have this idea of like being in this disembodied place that it's your spirit that goes there. You know where that's found in the Bible? It's not. It's found on the lips of Plato, the Greek philosopher, that our conception of heaven actually comes from Greek philosophy. And our conception of hell, that's those who don't get forgiven by God, actually comes more from Dante, our picture of it, than it does from the pages of Scripture. Because when Jesus talks about hell, he's talking about a real place on the south end of Jerusalem called the Valley of Hinnom that was kind of a garbage dump in a burial place for the poor. So our story that we're telling is this idea of a, of a moralistic religion, of a pagan God, and of a vision of Greek philosophy about what the eternal life looks like. And our stories shape us. Our stories shape us and reshape us and shape the way that we see the world and even can shape the way that we see God. Which is probably why so many of us don't have an intimate relationship with God, but in the words of Richard Rohr, we have more of a cautious standoff with an angry deity. Some of you are thinking to yourself, like, where is he going with all of this? Because maybe it, maybe it feels a little disorienting. Maybe it feels a little disruptive because, well, I mean, if I'm wrong and you're wrong and we're all wrong, then you know where we're going. And it's not with clouds. So that's a good question. Where am I going with this? Well, I want to say this. I think the story that I just told and critiqued actually has some viability to it, which is probably why it's had such staying power. However, I think even though it might have some right components, I think they've been like misassembled. And we're pointing at things in a way that's not very clear, and we're being influenced, as all of us are, by other things that just may not be fully true. So let's retell this story, starting with sin, because people love talking about sin, don't we? That was a joke. You apparently don't, because none of you laughed. 
If you were with us last week, we talked about sin, and we said this, sin is the disruption of shalom. Shalom is what existed, this peace, this unity, this perfect justice that existed in the garden that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. Shalom is the way things are supposed to be. Sin is the way things are not supposed to be. And we talked about how things in our world and things within us are not the way they're supposed to be. But there's also a greater significance to sin in that in both the Jewish and Christian tradition, they didn't see sin as a bunch of little misdeeds and actions that we can do or not do that are going to get us into trouble. They understood that sin was a force in energy, a power that was working against us. The Episcopal priest Fleming Rutledge says this about sin. Sin is not so much a collection of individual misdeeds as it is an active, malevolent agency bent upon despoiling, imprisonment, and death. It is the utter undoing of God's purposes. Misdeeds are a sign of that agency at work. They are not the thing itself. It is the thing itself that is our cosmic enemy. It's interesting to note that the ancient Jewish people said, The consequences of sin are exile, or enslavement, or imprisonment. They recognize that sin, this powerful force that Rutledge talks about, enslaved people, imprisoned people, and that we made an agreement to participate with it. That sin is this thing that's absolutely and totally destroying Creation, that we are being crushed beneath the indignity of sin as human beings. This is not what we were made for. That sin's not you just walking around telling, you know, a, a lie. Sin's you not just breaking a few rules. Because I understand when people see sin that way, they're like, God's going to send me to hell forever because I told a few lies? Well, of course that's confusing. No, sin is a destructive force that is bent on undoing shalom. This is the Jewish and Christian understanding. Now, if you are a God who brings this universe into being, if you are a God who is all about shalom, wouldn't you be a little bit upset if this force was bent on undoing all of that? Let me ask it this way. How many of you have a friend or a partner or a child and you've seen that person be wounded by, betrayed by someone else? In those moments, how do you feel toward that other person who did the betraying or did the wounding or did the hurting? You're not like, oh, get over here so I can give you a big hug. Get into these arms, right? No. If you're anything like me, like when I see somebody hurt my kids, it's on. And some of you are like, well, you don't look real big. That's fine. Tell yourself that story because you'll never see it coming. I am Cuban and I am Irish. Enough said. I want to destroy it. When we read this idea of God's anger, God's anger is at this force Some of you are like, I don't know if I like the idea of an angry God. Okay. 
Do we not want God to be angry about racism? Do we want a God that just kind of shrugs his shoulders when he sees abuse? Do we want a God who just is kind of indifferent when it comes to sex trafficking and enslavement that still happens in our world today? Do we want a God who kind of rolls his eyes and does nothing when it comes to environmental degradation that's happening in our planet? I mean, I'm just going to assume if you're not okay with that, why would we want a God who seems to be okay with that? You see, this is the battle between the thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy and the shepherd who lays down his life. This is the cosmic war, we might say, that's raging. But we hear on the lips of Jesus that when he lays down his life, he didn't come in and fight in the way that evil fights. Instead, he took evil all upon himself. And in a way that I can't really fully explain, in the Christian tradition holds that in that one moment on the cross, Jesus took all of the sin, all of the evil, all of the shame, all of the violence, all of the death on himself. And that is what God punished. You see, God didn't punish Jesus. That's a, we need to be very clear about this. One scholar said, we don't read John 3.16 as for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. We read it as saying God hated the world so much he killed his only son. No, Romans chapter 8, Paul's very clear that God condemns sin in Jesus, not condemned, not punished Jesus. N.T. Wright points this out and he says this. Here's a point that must be noted most carefully. Paul does not say that God punished Jesus he declares that God punished sin in the flesh of Jesus. Now, to be sure, the crucifixion was no less terrible an event because with theological hindsight, the apostle could see that what was being punished was sin itself rather than Jesus himself. The physical, mental, and spiritual agony that Jesus went through on that terrible day was not alleviated in any way. But theologically speaking, it makes all the difference. The death of Jesus has to do with the punishment on sin, not, to say it again, on Jesus. Jesus stood there and uh, the powers of sin and death were unleashed on him. And how do you fight back against that? Well, you let it do its worst to you and then you come out the other side on Easter morning and say, is that all you got? Because when something unleashes its full power on you and it does not beat you, you have said your power is impotent. And this is what's happening. And it's because Jesus laid down his life that we are then those who Jesus says can have life and have it to the full. Which many say is a Jewish idiom for eternal life. Many of us equate eternal life in heaven but eternal life, while it is heaven, and a reference to heaven, it's a Jewish kind of heaven, not a Greek kind of heaven. In the Jewish mindset, heaven was simply the place where God's presence was real. The place where God was fully present and we were fully present with God. This heaven spoke of communion, connection, restoration. You see, that's a very different story 
than the one many of us grew up hearing. And here's the confounding thing. It's not even new. It didn't begin even when Jesus died on the cross. This story has always been true. Robert Capon says it this way. He says, the mysterious reconciling grace that was revealed in Jesus is not something that got its act in gear for the first time in Jesus. Rather, it's a feature of the very constitution of the universe, a feature that was there all along for everybody and everything. And it was there, Christians believe, because the person who manifests himself finally and fully in Jesus's humanity is no other than the word of God the second person of the three persons in one God who's intimately and immediately present to every scrap of creation from start to finish. That what we celebrate during this season of Lent, what we celebrate on Good Friday, what we will celebrate on Easter, it's not new. It didn't just happen one time. No, it's a revelation of who God is. You see, the cross is not a picture of what it took God to forgive. Let me say that again. The cross is not a picture of what was necessary, of what it took for God to forgive. The cross is a picture of what it looks like when God forgives. Jesus was revealing what's always been true of God. The cross proclaims, this is what I am willing to endure, to forgive and love and show you what God is like. Now, if stories have the power to shape us, then all of a sudden, if we begin recognizing that sin is this malevolent force that, we, that enslaves us and that we participate in, and that God came to liberate us and rescue us, all of a sudden you have to begin asking questions about what does it mean to be human that God would do this for us? That not only would God do this for us in Christ, but that God in doing this never seems to say, well, that wasn't worth it. That Jesus says, listen, I'm the one here doing this. I'm doing this of my own accord. I'm willingly here. What might that tell us about the glory of being human? What might that tell you about yourself? Maybe you grew up hearing from the platform, God hates you. God can't stand to be in the same room as you. People have told you over and over, you are nothing but a lousy sinner. Depending on what story you tell, you may come to those conclusions. But how might your view of yourself and others be shaped and reshaped? if we recognize what God was willing to do. If, if the cross is a picture of what God is willing to do or willing to endure to forgive, if the cross is a picture of what it looks like when God forgives, maybe God's not angry. Maybe God actually is love. If heaven's not just like a get out of jail free card and we're getting out of here and we're up there, but heaven is actually this place that's real and concrete and provides tangible communion and restoration and renewal with God and others. 
And then it's not some distant day far away, but it's this life that Jesus talks about, life to the full that we can have right now. What might that tell us about the way that we can live today? You see, the stories that we tell shape us and reshape us and shape the way that we see the world. And my hope is that we'll be those who learn to tell a better story. One that reflects the heart of a loving God who longs to liberate us so that we might have life and have it to the full. Let's pray together. God, I ask that you would cause us to reflect deeply on the stories that we tell, on the ways that we think about you, on the ways we think about us. Would you cause us to recognize how far you are and we're willing to go to rescue every last one of us and restore this good and beautiful world of ours? May we see that you know and believe we are worth it. That you are a God of love and that you invite us into communion with you right here and right now. We pray these things together in the strong name of Jesus. And all my friends said,